Welcome to Stories with Strengths, a podcast where we over-psychoanalyze characters from your favorite movies, TV, and media. I'm Tyler, he, him. I'm Jennifer, she, her, hers. And today we are talking about a lovely far-off place. You can only get there if you go through your closet door and go into a magical space. No, I'm not talking about Narnia. I am instead talking about the hustle and bustle of Monstropolis as we journey into the universe of Monsters, Inc. However, before we get there, uh, we got to do a get to know you question. And as we all know, Jen, as we all find out and know that the power of laughter is 10 times as powerful as the power of fear. Mm -hmm. And so from you, Jen, today, I would like to know what is your favorite like joke joke? Like not joke like, hey, this is a funny line from a movie or TV show, but joke like knock knock or joke like set up punchline laugh. Kind and of. not like inside joke? No, no, just a joke, like just a joke just you would joke find book. in a joke book. Oh, goodness. I mean, I love me some good dad jokes, some bad puns, mm-hmm. some play on words. Um, and now you're going to put me on the spot to think of an actual favorite I joke, joke. I have That's mine okay. if you want some time to think. Yes, give me a moment. What is yours? So growing up, my favorite was always the knock-knock horn. Aren't you glad I didn't say banana? The one that yes. could go on forever and ever. For whatever reason, I really liked that one. Made me laugh real hard. But I think ever since I was probably about 12 to now, my favorite joke joke is the um, the pirate captain on the ship and they see uh, boats on the horizon. And every oh, time they go into battle, he tells bring them, me bring my me my red, red shirt. jacket. Yeah. Yeah. So and then at the and then bleed. at the end, yeah, as they see me bleed, they'll they'll keep fighting. And then the, the lookout says, Captain, there are six ships on the horizon. He says, Bring me my brown pants. I love that yes. joke. It's very good. Okay. Um, um I figured out mine because regardless if it comes back up in conversation, I will say this joke and um use it all the time and it still makes me laugh. It's the stupid Star Wars ones. That's like um, when it's Yoda speaking, and it's like, <laughs> yes. What, so what is a Jedi's type uh, car? A toy Yoda. <laughs> yeah. So yes, all yes. of the stupid Star Wars ones. Thanks to and a they're certain, all dumb puns as well. They're all dumb dumb puns. They're Star Wars themed, and you can do the funny joke given based off a certain YouTube uh, channels reactions to those jokes and i think they're hilarious and that's my answer is dumb star wars pun jokes excellent a a perfect answer a a, a great answer one might even say yes (laughs) well all right i think without any further ado then we should dive right into the topic at hand jen i believe you have a new client i do have a new client i actually have new clients as i'm working with a family I'm working with the Gibbs family. They are coming in with their two-year-old daughter and uh, talking about a recent incident that they're still very actually confused about what happened. Um, A part of this is a little bit of a mandated like social worker interview. You should go seek therapy. Another part of this is general concern for their daughter, Mary. So Mary is a two-year-old human girl who recently went missing one night from her bedroom. Uh, Reports say that they don't know if she was kidnapped or if she uh, just kind of left her bedroom one night. They put her down. They went to check on her and she was gone. There's no signs of foul play in the home. There's no signs of 
like a window open or like a door open, but she was missing for a good while. Um, they say roughly at least 24 hours, if not longer, uh, based on uh, the fact that we know how many days went on in the monster world, quote unquote, but they don't know that. So we're going to go at least missing two nights. And um, based on her artwork, the um, the parents think that there was somebody that took her because she keeps drawing a picture of a purple monster-like human, though kind of lizard-like. But, you know, it's a two-year-old. Maybe we can interpret this as the monster in her closet. Um, and real scary face. And she draws pictures of this monster that that took her. But then she also draws pictures of her beating up this monster as a monster with a baseball bat. And for a two-year-old, I must say, her artwork is quite advanced. And when working within family therapy, and especially if a child is two, you're doing family therapy. There's certain things you can do with a child that young in a therapeutic setting. And at the same time, a lot of it would be engaging with the family as well to take learned skills in the therapy room and transition them to the family. And the family doesn't have to be biological. For instance, I just want to throw that out there. It could be a coin-appointed foster parents. It could be grandma, grandpa, aunts, uncles, legal guardianship, or biological parents. But uh, for this case, it is her biological parents and working specifically with them. Um, as the family is considered the identified patient, not just her, we'd also be talking about what the concerns are for the family unit in general. You know, they have their daughter go missing and we would probably work together, just mom and dad, maybe just with mom, just with dad, about their reactions to that event and what it was like, you know, maybe having police officers look at them about was it, you know, within the family, someone took the kid and their concerns and fears, how they've reported being very protective now and af afraid to let their child, you know, be in settings without them. And they know eventually she'll be transitioning to school settings. And since they didn't understand what happened or if someone had taken their child, is there somebody still out there that's a threat? So kind of processing that trauma response and giving them time to trust their parenting skills again, that like it wasn't their fault. They did not miss anything that night. And then also giving a space for her. And since she is so inclined to artwork, doing expressive arts and very basic child-directed play therapy, as even Tyler's talked about in previous episodes of, you know, having her have the freedom to play out uh, what those events were, we'd probably see uh, her really fall into the the toy theme of monster play of reenacting monsters or bringing in monster toys for her to play with as that's what she seems to be her identified language of how she wants to process these events and giving her an opportunity to enact that and then process through that helping her feel safe and confident in her home again but that's what's kind of interesting is she seems pretty well adjusted she doesn't have an initial fear response to her parents or to outside environments she's showing off a very confident demeanor and um, kind of looking at if there will be a delayed reaction later um, noticing that she does meet a lot of typical developmental milestones but her language seems to be a little delayed for a two-year-old typically I'd want to get her in 
assessed by a speech and language pathologist that's outside our scope of practice, but something that we refer to, especially through her school district, even if she's just in preschool um, or in a you know school-like setting, she does have access to those resources through her, her zoning school district and get her assessed, talk to her pediatrician, make sure that she is also safe and healthy and that there is no signs of trauma related to her time missing and refer out to those appropriate resources. Um, but back to like the actual play therapy dynamic, it would be a lot of providing her opportunities to, to play out what had happened, give her closure in those plays, promote autonomy over her play of you get to make the decisions in this room. You did that all by yourself. You uh, have the have those choices here in the playroom while also helping guide a little bit too of, well, what would it be like if, you know, this character did this instead? Or if I'm invited into the play, help enact certain conversations through play. And then also inviting the parents in to help them feel more confident in how to engage these conversations with her, especially if there's a language delay, um, giving her the tools to express herself and the parents to understand what those expressions are. And again, on the parent end of things, helping them feel like more confident parents, again, that they didn't do anything wrong, that uh, from all of our understandings that this wasn't their fault that this happened, the fears that they're going through and how to help them regain that trust with each other that could be there and how to help them um, feel like confident parents again as they continue this stage of development with their daughter. Um, through her artwork, seeing the different monsters that she is drawing. She has an identified green little one-eyed monster. She has one monster that's blue and fluffy that she's identified as Kitty. The other one she identified as Mike Wazowski. And, um, and then the purple monster, which seems to be the more identified scary monster. So, um, of course, in our human world, we wouldn't understand that these monsters are real for her. And so often, as we've talked about in previous episodes, children might be um, using these as like archetypal characters of maybe it's the two people that helped her. Maybe it's mom and dad. And this is how she's translating that. Bringing in bibliotherapy books that maybe utilize monsters as a way to communicate different needs. Like I have personally, I have some that like the worry monsters or how to um, help our monsters feel better um, how to help our monsters communicate their feelings more effectively so that they don't scare us and be able to help figure out who these identified monsters are in her life and how she connects with them it seems like mike and identified kitty aren't scary to her so giving parents the peace of mind that not all the artwork she is drawing is scary artwork uh, so often a parent might look at a piece of art that a child draws and get worried and get scared. Like if you saw the purple lizard monster, that looks a little bit more scary. And is my child traumatized? Is she going through something? How do we help? And then looking at the other artworks, I would invite her to draw, you know, the self-portrait. And we would do self-portraits over time to see if there's any changes in how she's experiencing her emotions and expressing herself, drawing pictures of the family, where are families, where are families 
members located in her artwork, how close she feels with them. This is all interpretive and you would definitely want to make sure that like as a therapist, you are not necessarily like one, if you can get the child play therapy training, that's great. But at least that your class talked about how to talk through art with children because um, it all is very interpretive and you don't want to assign labels to the play or to the art, but let them assign things and kind of talk about things with you through them. Sometimes when a kid draws something, it's literally just the meme that they think is funny that week and it has nothing to do with anything else. I have seen so many little Among Us guys. You would have right? no idea. All the Among Us guys. Um, and, you know, I'm not going to psychoanalyze that. They just like Among Us. <laughs> um, and, but for her specifically, the fact that it is just monsters and it seems to be very specific monsters over a course of time. We would want to dive into that more and her experience of that more. And I feel like for her and her family, it would be very short-term therapy as the child does not seem to be in distress. And maybe transitioning from the child being welcomed back or if she as she gets older and is consolidating her memories more and this becomes a more distressing event. She can always come back into therapy, but maybe transition out of family therapy into more focused on the parents and their experience of things. But I feel like it would be giving the tools for mom and dad to help better communicate and facilitate conversations with her as needed if and when it comes up and just giving her a basic space to kind of assess and process what happened as they don't know if she was kidnapped and or just wandered out of her room and wandered back in one night. So that would be my time with Mary Gibbs. And by the way, in her artwork, it's identified as Boo. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I uh, <laughs> I did not realize she had a last name. I That was new information for me. Okay. So it is cool. according to the Wikipedias for cool. Monster Scene. She is Mary in the, uh, the show. She has a piece of artwork signed Mary yes. in, in the first movie. I want to say it's associated with the uh the the little child who does the the voice the voice her. oh yeah. cool very cool well thank you very much what a yeah i think a cool idea of doing some of those play therapy techniques we would normally do one-on-one -on -one, but in a family session right. is, is for a her, great it's, idea yeah it's teaching the parents how to do it at home yeah exactly if it comes up later yeah that's awesome all right and so why boo why boo i love monster Inc. it's my favorite pixar movie um and i was thinking like do i do one of the monsters and or do i do the one human character and i was thinking like it'd be really funny to think of it from the parents perspective because we don't see what happened at home in those events but mm -hmm. she has a complete therapeutic art through the movie where she is like scared of randall has monsters that help her. She gains her self-confidence, fights her monster, is happy at the end, right? Like she's no longer afraid of her monster anymore. And from the parent perspective, their kid went missing for at least 24 to 36 hours, mm -hmm. right? Because I think there's two nights in the yeah. monster world, at least, yes. for Boo. And because uh, it's the first night she spends the night and then you know there's a night where Mike and uh scully are with the abominable snowman like mm -hmm. that is one evening um and wondering like that 
terror of like you check on your kids usually at that age multiple times during the night or like she might still be getting up to go use the restroom since she's already potty training um, yeah and your kid's missing <laughs> you're gonna end up in therapy from that one just so, a little bit huh just a little bit so i thought that and was then it. just appears out of nowhere with no explanation no explanation and you know those parents were like interrogated of like did you take your child and hide yeah. them somewhere uh just based on like real life knowledge of like how that stuff works yeah um, and it would just be like uh that well, realistically they would be in therapy after if yes, it was not absolutely. mandated yeah, the thing that would be interesting to me is like boo like 10, 20 years down the line after this. Mm -hmm. Right? Because she's young enough that she's not going to have working memory of her time yeah. in the monster realm, but she's going to have those feelings of being scared, being away from her parents, being attached to this big right. blue, blue furry creature. Like, what is that like for her 20 mm -hmm. years later where she's an adult and now, you know, not understanding where some of her feelings are coming from? Right. And what's interesting is that first night in the in with Mike and Sully, she doesn't have an initial fear response. Yeah. Like she's tired, but she doesn't have that like I'm in a strange new world fear response that we see. So yeah. it is interesting. And I when I was reading up more about the character as we we normally do a little research. Um, mm -hmm. They were saying that in talks for a sequel to Monsters, Inc., it was going to be her as a teenager. Mm -hmm. And the rule in Monsters, Inc. is you get to a certain age where you don't believe in monsters anymore and you forget. Mm. And it was them realizing Boo had forgotten about them. Aww. And they said that was too depressing. They scrapped that idea and did the prequel. Monsters University. Instead. <laughs> That's they're like, fair. It, it was so heartwarming at the end to why ruin that <laughs> yeah um, but it was interesting to read that like at some point boo may not remember her time there and more of like a yeah like i have a lot of kid artwork from when i was two about monsters yeah and just had a monster phase right or yeah you know some of us have a dinosaur phase or a truck phase or yeah some of us never grow out of our dinosaur phase and that's fine too yes <laughs> um, but it would be it would be interesting to like see if what what sticks for her yeah like you could totally see her like i'm gonna name like my kid my kitten like kitty or scully or like um, like what translates later <laughs> that she doesn't realize <laughs> this is my cat james p sullivan, sullivan. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> she gets like a hermit crab yeah well awesome thank you so much and we'll be right back after the show break with more stories with shanks Welcome back to Stories of Shrinks, where we are talking about the wonderful and my personal favorite world of Monsters, Inc. I love it so much. And I just finished up with a girl named Boo. Tyler, I do believe you have a new client. I do. Uh, but instead of being in the human world, I'm going to need you to imagine me with like two extra arms, maybe two extra eyes. I do all the time. I always oh, imagine all my friends as monsters in my brain. Yes, yes, so yes, you're yes. fine. <laughs> Maybe green skin. Well, I, I we'll, we'll work it. We'll workshop it a little bit. Oh no, it's definitely like an aquamarine <laughs> with like purple and green like squared. Oh, dots. oh, I love that. That's great. Yeah, thank you. 
You're I welcome. appreciate that. And yeah, I am going to be a monster therapist today, and I'm going to be talking with none other than one of the saviors of our city, one of the people who brought us out of the energy crisis that we were facing for a long time, and I'm going to be discussing things with one Michael Wazowski for a few reasons. One, this dude saved our city, and now he's our star laugher on the on the laugh floor. And we're going to be talking about right after the end of Monsters, Inc., right after that end scene of, you know, him helping Sully rebuild the door and Sully getting to go through Boo's door one more time. So we're going to end right there is going to be where we're talking about. And we're going to be talking about a couple things with him. Uh, the first being he is what I think he would come into therapy for is he now has a, a very sudden mindset change around who he is as a person. Uh, he's got a very large, what I would call chapter change here in his story. And uh, we need to kind of talk through that. The other thing that I would want to talk to him about is he's got this kind of weird defense mechanism that's a little delusional where when things don't go his way, he still pretends like it, they do. Um, and I want to talk to him about that. And then finally, uh, he's got some trust rebuilding he has to do in his romantic relationship, which I think is also necessary to talk about with him one-on-one -on -one and probably refer him to couples therapy for. Um, but let's start with the top here with working on this chapter change in his life and going through the narrative change of moving from being a sidekick to somebody who is the best laugher, the best laugher on the floor, right? He goes from being somebody who does all the paperwork and make sure the door gets put away, make sure the canisters are loaded to being the person who's in the room telling jokes, swallowing a microphone and belching and getting kids to laugh so that they can provide energy for us. Wonderful. Love it. And talking to him about what it means to change that mindset, because oftentimes when people have these major things in their lives that change, they don't quite catch up right away. It takes a little while for your confidence and your self-esteem to build up to where you are now versus where you were. And I want to talk to him about that. How did you view yourself before? What was it like? And I think that Mike was happy before. I, do, I don't think he was unhappy doing the job he was doing. But I do feel like there may have been some job dissatisfaction in there where he felt like, you know, hey, you know, Sully gets all the attention. Sully's the one that everybody likes. Uh, and I'm just the guy at the desk, right? And talking through that, because he's got a couple of moments with Sully and in that relationship with his best friend where they have those kinds of conversations. You never listen to me. You never take my opinion. You're, you know, you're not listening to my opinion. You're just taking your opinion, that kind of stuff. And so helping him walk through that and helping him navigate, now you are the person in the leadership position. How do you want to work with that? What is that going to look like for you? And what worked for you when you had people who were, you know, the star of the show over you? And what didn't work for you in those moments? And how can you integrate your learned experience into this experience as you move forward? And really just deconstructing this idea of I'm the sidekick, I'm not important, and reconstructing a new narrative of I am, you know, competent at my job. I am working my job at this at this level because I deserve it and building up his self-esteem around this issue. While doing that, we get to point number two, 
which is that Mike has a weird thing where when he gets treated like a sidekick, he just pretends that he's not. Um, and it's this defense mechanism, this also coping mechanism thing where, you know, when things happen, like he was in a commercial for Monsters Inc., but they covered his entire face and body with the logo for Monsters Inc. Uh, or, you know, he's been in, you know, in different pictures with, with Sully, but he gets covered up by the, the words on the magazine cover. Like he always gets kind of thought of as an afterthought. And his reaction to that is this almost delusional thinking of like, I, there I am. It's me. Look, it's me right there. Uh, and it, on the one hand, that's like fairly adaptive, right? Like it's not hurting him to do that. But I think it's also ignoring the pain of being, you know, looked over. And so as we're going through this narrative of what does it mean to now be this person, also talking to him about like, what was it really like when those moments happened? What was it really like when you watched this commercial and at the end of it, you're covered up by a logo? What did you really feel? You felt excited because there was a commercial and you could see your arms and your legs. Absolutely. So cool. But were you also hurt a little bit that, you know, everybody else is visible, but you're not. And what was that like? And exploring that for himself to not necessarily get rid of that defense mechanism, but at least to make him more aware of it, understand it more. And, process the feelings that are under that so they're not just sitting there taking up space doing not being you know dealt with uh then finally moving into the last piece of one-on-one -on -one relationship or trust repair like i said i'd probably refer him to a couple's counselor that makes a lot of sense to me of just like hey buddy like go and see uh one of my good friends here who does couples work because i do um i've got a i've got a few friends now who do really really good couples work and I love referring them clients because that means I don't have to do it. Uh, and so same with uh, with Mike here. I'd say, hey, maybe you and Celia need to go and do some couples work together to work on rebuilding this trust. But while you're doing that, let's work on this in here and talk about what it was like for you to betray Celia's trust and know that you were betraying Celia's trust on your anniversary, nonetheless. You know, what does it mean that she got rightfully angry at you for basically ignoring her on your anniversary and going through this whole process yes at the end of the day she forgives you and she loves you and so wants to be with you but also that relationship is not going to be unchanged by all of the events that happened on those couple nights uh recently and so talking him through it and being like hey for you what in this relationship felt like you you know what still feels like it needs work let's get you set up so that when you go into couples therapy you know what you're going to be talking about and what does it mean to know that you've hurt somebody that you care about and how can we talk about that because oftentimes people will uh the metaphor i typically use is take themselves out to the garage and use themselves like a punching bag um especially when we do things that we regret and so talking to him talking him through those regrets and saying like you know you made mistakes you made bad decisions just like any other person or monster just like any other monster you made a bad choice and it didn't totally ruin your life but there needs to be some rebuilding some restructuring here so that way this doesn't happen again because i think that that is sort of the main reason when we make a mistake when we have a regret the lesson you're learning from that regret is i don't want to re repeat this and so how can we navigate your life so that way you can have the integrity of living with that and going, you know what, Celia, I know I hurt you. I'm never going to do that again and mean it. And 
part of that is setting boundaries with ourselves and teaching him how to do that. But also that part of that is teaching him how to set boundaries with others. You know, he really loves Sully. This is his best friend. They've been best friends since college. They work together. They live together. They are, are totally, you know, simpatico people. And yet Mike has a really hard time setting and keeping boundaries with him. That Sully, Sully goes, I want to do this. And Mike goes, I don't think that's a good idea. And Sully goes, yeah, but we need to do it. And then Mike goes, okay, well, I'll follow your lead then. And this pulls back into that first thing of I'm the sidekick, you're the leader, I will follow you. And now he's not in that position anymore. And so getting him to be able to say no to the people that he cares about is a big deal. Because one, for a lot of us, especially those of us who feel like we need to follow someone's lead, that it's hard. It's really difficult to say no, because saying no doesn't feel safe, doesn't feel good. Uh, but it also is necessary. And oftentimes there is a relief to it that the first few times you do say no, you feel really good about it rather than anxious about it. It's just the buildup getting to there and saying, you know what, mm, that's not good for me. And especially in a roommate situation, you really need good boundaries. You really need good communication. And so if Sully says, hey, I'm bringing home this stray human, you can say, no, I don't want a stray human in our house. If you're going to hang out with that human, get out, because that's dangerous for us. Especially at the time where we thought that humans were toxic. So there's this whole thing of just like, Mike needs to learn how to set boundaries with others, set boundaries with himself, and rebuild the trust in his relationship. But it all ties back to that narrative of, well, I'm the sidekick, I'm just going to follow your lead. Rather than now, where he can say, you know what? I'm the top laugher on the floor. I'm bringing in the most energy. I can be a leader in my life. I can be a leader in my workplace. I can be a co-leader in my relationship. And I can navigate this thing from a position of power rather than a position of falling behind. Um, and that honestly is really the biggest thing for him in this is just some empowerment work. And so that would be my work with Mr. Wazowski. Absolutely. And I think for him, there is such like, a, you know, sometimes I talk to clients about like, it's a good coping skill, but it's not the most effective coping skill. Mm -hmm. And like finding that balance and realizing how it also affects others. Because every time in those scenes where he's like, it's me on the magazine cover, everyone's face goes like, Oof. yeah, <laughs> and, yeah, everybody kind of knows what's going on. Right. And, you know, translating that, I think, is specifically within the couple's dynamics, too, of, like, she isn't happy. Like, she she's there, and it's good because she can see all the events and what was going on. But, like, you still have to touch base on, like, dude, you messed up, and you constantly put your friendship before her. And there's always a healthy balance with, like, balancing friends and relationships. But do better, bud. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And being that upfront with him, right? It's like, yeah. hey, you're going to have to rebuild trust here. Even if she says she forgives you and you kiss and it's wonderful and lovely, right. you still need to rebuild trust here. Right. That's going to take some work. Absolutely. So thank you. Yeah. So for you, why Mike Wazowski? And you um, have to well, say his full name every Yes, day. Mike Wazowski. Um, <laughs> I chose Mike Wazowski because uh, I get to talk about empowerment work, but with a man, mm -hmm. with somebody who's male. Did I list oh. off his demographics at the beginning? I don't know if I did. I don't know. I typically do. I'll do it right now just because I, I have them. And if I double down on them, I'll edit them out. Hey. Yeah. Uh, but Mike is a monster. He's in his late 20s-ish. Heterosexual, cisgender male. There you go. So 
being able to do empowerment work with a male client because oftentimes when people think feminist theory, feminist therapy, they hear that fem word and they stop thinking about, you know, the other probably Genders. 45% of gender. Yeah. Well, that's why I'm saying 45%, right? Yeah. There's probably like a good 10% that is non-binary um, or gender non-conforming, mm -hmm. actually probably more than that when you mm -hmm. think about it. But people who probably actively identify probably around 10% would be my guess. And that's totally a statistic I'm pulling out of my butt. I want to make that very, very clear. Nobody <laughs> listen to me in my statistics. I am a therapist, not a math major. <laughs> um, so roughly 45% of the population is male, mm -hmm. right? And identifies as such, identifies as men. And we forget that these feminist concepts apply to men as well. Mm -hmm. And empowerment is just as important for men as it is for women, because guess what? Our society sends bad messages on both sides of that particular issue. And if you're non-binary, there's also bad stuff in there, too. Mm -hmm. Yay. Yeah, you don't get to win. It doesn't matter what you identify as. Society has something to say about it, and it's never good. Right. Um, and so this empowerment piece that is a huge part of feminist theory is super important for anybody of any gender. And so to be able to bring it in and talk about it from the perspective of this is a male client who needs empowerment, this is kind of what that would look like. Eh, it's fun. I like to do yeah, that. Yeah. Absolutely. That's absolutely. the concept a little bit. And especially I think with Mike Rosowski as the sidekick. Yeah. And like what we know about Monsters University is he went in to be on the same level. Like he was a scarer. Yes. And not the assistant and having to have that that moment of you're not scary enough yes and how does that affect identity and i think it would be great conversations all around so thank you yeah thank you and thank you all for listening if you liked what you hear and you want to hear more of us talk about some nerdy stuff go check out other episodes share these episodes with your friends give us a like or comment however your podcast platform does it we appreciate all of it go check us out on instagram at stories with shrinks where i post when i remember to post and at least i'm honest about that but there's also great advocacy stuff up there too within our stories i try to uh, put information out there for mental health awareness so go like subscribe all that fun jazz thanks again for listening bye y'all take care everyone Stories with Shrinks is an entertainment and education podcast. Our views are our own and should not be considered canon or associated with any of the media or universes we discuss. And thank you to Purple Planet Music for our theme song, Phoenix Rising. You can find music for all your podcasting or YouTube needs at www.purple-planet.com. Mm -hmm.